And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today, Dr. John Vance. Hello, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt. Hi, Dan. Well, gentlemen, it's good to have you again here with us this week. And uh, last week we talked about uh, 9-11, and uh, this week it's uh, kind of a change in gears, as it were. And uh, we're talking about the keys. Now, uh, I've got a set of keys in my pocket, but that's not the uh, key that we're talking about. But we're talking about keys as they're referenced in the Scriptures. And uh, to get us started, uh, John Vance, maybe you could uh, explain what we're talking about today. Well, the keys uh, happens to be, the exercise of the keys is, is a uh, technical uh, phrase in, uh, in the Christian faith, in Christianity. And uh, the power of the keys, of course, uh, is disputed, particularly between Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, uh, exactly what that means. Nonetheless, uh, it's an important phrase used by all, and uh, we do debate as to what the powers of those keys are. And the keys, of course, uh, come from uh, the passage in Matthew chapter 16 in which... um, Uh, Peter confesses Christ, and I think most people know that passage or have heard a sermon on it. It It's a very powerful passage, to say the least. But following uh, a dialogue with Peter, uh, Jesus uh, turns to Peter after he has confessed him as Lord and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Briefly, the keys happens to represent that the authority that the church has because of what Jesus has promised to Peter and the apostles and the following disciples. Mm -hmm. So it's an exercise of church authority. What is the church authorized to do and to be? Mm -hmm. So we debate over church authority. What is the authority that the church has? And Protestants and Catholics clearly have a difference as to what authority the church possesses. And, of course, uh, most of us don't know very much about Eastern Orthodox views on these things. Uh, but the debate has not included them, except that in church councils, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have debated over the nature of the keys. Usually this has come down to the role of the Pope. But on the other hand, the nature of the keys are important for the ministry. We're really talking about what ministry the church has. What can it do? Mm-hmm. And I think this is important in a day in which uh, we have a a uh, something on our in our case law that there is a separation of church and state. Yes, it's clear that the church has no mandate in the scriptures to devise, for instance, a constitution for the state. Yeah, and, and this um, this kind of harkens back to something we were talking about the other day. Uh, remember, we were talking about the sacraments. Um, and we're talking how that um, the church has a special role in the administration of those sacraments. And, um, for example, I, I just, on my own, just don't go out and start baptizing people. I don't go out and start serving communion. 
But that's uniquely the role of the church. It is. Uh, the power, as uh, Protestants have understood it, is that the church has the authority from Christ through the apostles to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach the whole counsel of God, the scriptures, and to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure we'll be getting to the historical side of all this, but uh, let me just continue uh, on this thought just a little bit more. Um, We had a a write-in comment on our Facebook page um, from a dear listener who uh, spoke about our baptism podcast. Um, They enjoyed it. And um, they said that um, regarding baptism, they had a little disagreement um, that it's really done only by a church, because in her experience, um, uh, the Lord saved her, and um, it took her some time to find a church. And so, in lieu of that, uh, she was baptized at an inner varsity meeting um, in a swimming pool by the leader of the group. And so, that would depart from... um, a little bit of what we described a couple of weeks ago on the sacraments. Yeah, that falls into a very uh, nebulous area, of course. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, I'll comment on this this way. Uh, The Church has been much more strict with respect to the Lord's Supper Mm -hmm. because it is is around the Lord's Supper that the Church admits people to its communion and, yes, can excommunicate. It exercises discipline. But since baptism is the sacrament of initiation, uh, the church historically has been looser on that. For instance, in Roman Catholic circles, a nurse in a hospital could administer baptism in Ah, an emergency. Uh, Now, something can be valid because it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and be irregular. I think that's the key here. Uh, because she mentioned that um, she felt that, apparently she felt it was important to get baptized. We would all agree with that. And she didn't have a church yet, and uh, she she felt an imperative to be baptized, to be identified with Christ. And uh, yet the church just wasn't there yet for her. And so that's um, we're not even suggesting that her baptism is invalid, but that uh, the key here is that it was irregular, I guess is the word. Yeah, it's not done decently and in order. Uh, it does not meet the New Testament standards for the way the Church of Christ is to conduct itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, let's turn the discussion a little bit now to um, the history of... Um, church bodies, uh, exercising the keys, and um, I see we're up against a break already, so I think what we'll do is, Hans, uh, when we come back, maybe you can help us understand a little bit of the flow of history uh, in terms of the popes and, and all of that that went on. Sure. Okay, stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Redeemer Broadcasting's A Plain Answer.
We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. In the studio with me today, Dr. John Vance, pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, and Dr. Hans Vogt, professor, Ulster County Community College. Today we're talking about a rather unique subject. It is uh, concerning the keys. And we explained earlier what we mean by that. Uh, let's just uh, take a pause now and look back in terms of history. Hans, um, And in particular, how did it develop with the various popes in the Roman Catholic tradition? Well, it's a gradual development. Um, It's pretty clear uh, early on in the first couple of centuries of church history uh, that you have in each city or community where where churches are established, you do have a a leader uh, known as a bishop, uh, and then who, who... becomes sort of the person in charge of the church in that community. Uh, And really by the second century, you begin to see five main cities, which were five of the, or at least four of them were of the largest cities in the empire, really come to prominence uh, in terms of leadership in the early church. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, uh, we can understand that from its uh, importance in our Lord's ministry and in the uh, Old Testament history as well. Uh, Alexandria in Egypt, one of the largest cities in the empire, Antioch, uh, Rome, which of course was the capital of the Roman Empire, uh, and then uh, once it's established in the 300s, Constantinople, which becomes the eastern capital or eventually capital of the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for a while, these five cities uh, and the bishops of these five cities are all sort of of equal importance. Gradually, however, the bishop of Rome the bishops of Rome, I should say, claimed more authority over time uh, and began to address their fellow bishops as sons rather than brothers Hmm. uh, and begin to assert that as heirs of Peter and Paul. And the the belief was that the church at Rome was established by the apostles Peter and Paul, uh, that uh, they had inherited this power of of the keys that um, we read about um, that Jesus had spoken of to Peter in Matthew's Gospel in, in chapter 16. So it's a gradual development. Mm-hmm. So it just and it is a development. There are several uh, ways to get at this. Uh, 
the bishops, of course, uh, have the power to teach and to to exercise superintendency over the churches. In fact, the word bishop is a Greek word that has something to relate to being a superintendent. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's natural then that uh, the organization would devolve upon one single person, usually in an area, in this case a powerful city. But what was a difference is that the Bishop of Rome began to claim what is called universal jurisdiction, okay. not just over a geographical local area, but over the whole church. And, of course, that became problematic and has been problematic ever since, uh, particularly with the Eastern churches and the Eastern bishops. And, of course, it came to the front uh, in the West at the time of the Protestant Reformation in a big way. It had always been a problem, mm-hmm. but in a big way it became a problem at the time of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And it's related in many ways to the political developments that are happening. Um, there's, I think, sort of a natural tendency for the church – to take on, for good or for ill, some of the trappings of, of the culture that it finds itself in in various locations throughout history. And certainly the, the political model of the Roman Empire was that you had one ruler, one emperor, divided into provinces, divided into cities, and so on and so forth. Um, but what happens also as well is that the, the western part of the empire collapses. Uh, Rome itself is sacked by uh, hmm. invaders. Uh, the, the political authority in the western part of the empire collapses. And the Bishop of Rome really steps into that leadership void and becomes not just a spiritual leader, but also becomes a temporal leader mm-hmm. uh, in claiming political authority. And in many ways, taking the place of the western emperor as a political as well as spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ed- Edward Gibbon in his uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire actually sets forth that thesis in a very powerful way. And so the Pope of Rome, or the Bishop of Rome, essentially replaces the Caesar. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, it became debatable now. What is the power of uh, the Bishop of Rome? Does he also have temporal power? Up until that point, bishops only understood themselves, at least at a certain point, to have spiritual power and to yeah. exercise spiritual authority. But when you find yourself a dominant personage, uh, in the entire Western world, of course, you can exercise temporal power, mm-hmm. and that became a a, a, a very uh, great dynamic in the Middle Ages, uh, the kings and the popes and the interplay that went on throughout the medieval period. Now, I was just going to ask you, what was the rough time frame for that? Well, it reaches a height, really, with um, the uh, papal bull known as Unum Sanctum. Uh, where the Pope in the high Middle Ages uh, actually claims to be supreme political as well as temporal authority and basically says all Christian kings need to bow to my authority mm. um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and tries to lay out a, a, a scriptural basis for that authority. Um, that gets weakened in the late Middle Ages because the papacy goes through a series of crises where there are two and for a while three popes, mm-hmm. uh, one in Rome, one in Avignon in southern France, and uh, there's an attempt to reassert the authority of church councils. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that, once again, popes reassert authority in the Renaissance period, and, uh, and that sets up, of course, the confrontation that Martin Luther has mm-hmm. uh, in the early 1500s. Okay. Now, what about, um, you know, I, I 
I guess all of us in this room here come from the Protestant Reformation tradition, um, and we often hear a lot about Roman Catholicism, Protestant, uh, at least, you know, here in the Hudson Valley where we live, you don't hear that much about Orthodox. Um, the um, the Orthodox tradition, I understand, splits from the, um, uh, what do I say, the Roman tradition, is, isn't is that around 1054 well, or well, something t- like that? Uh, that? That's true, but... Uh, actually, it took place spiritually much earlier. Mm-hmm. There was not much relationship at all. Yeah. It just became official uh, in the 11th century. But it had okay. split culturally and politically uh, much, much earlier. Mm-hmm. So it was a growing thing, um, a growing division that was only sanctioned, if you will, or recognized officially mm-hmm. in the 11th century. We have uh, listeners to this station, probably most are Protestant. We have some Roman Catholic listeners. I believe we have some Orthodox listeners, but um, I can't recall who they are at this point. But um, be interested in hearing from you out there. If if you want to send us an email, our, our address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. We'd love to meet you and also um, become friends on Facebook. Now, uh, we're talking today about the keys, and um, John, you mentioned the Matthew 16 text, and as Peter was confessing Christ, and then Christ uh, spoke to Peter, uh, how are we to understand these keys? And let me be so bold to ju- just say, without becoming Roman Catholics, and I'm not uh, knocking Roman Catholics at all, but uh, how are we as Protestants to understand that text regarding keys. Well, the way that most Protestants understand it would be different, of course, from Roman Catholic understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roman Catholics believe briefly that they receive the keys from Peter, the popes do, and it's passed down essentially through each pope. Uh, it's called Petrine Secession, mm-hmm. and that the authority then, the supreme authority of the church rests with the papacy. Protestants believe essentially that the keys were passed on to Peter and to all the apostles and to faithful followers. Eventually, the officers of the church, would the permanent office would be elders, um, and they exercise the keys. Mm-hmm. And now, it's important to understand that Protestants believe that the exercise of the keys must be spiritual, it must be ministerial, and it must be limited in that sense. It can only be uh, ministerial and declarative. You can declare what Scripture teaches. What Protestants deny that the Church has this authority is that it has no legislative authority. It can, may not make up new laws or new requirements for spirituality beyond the Scriptures, mm-hmm. whereas the Roman Catholic Church believes the Church has the authority to, in fact, the Church in its own power, because it has the keys, to make up additional rules and regulations and understandings that are not necessarily found in Scripture. Mm-hmm. I, um, I I know and you know folks who, um, I hope I'm not wandering into a dangerous territory here, but let me just throw it out. Uh, folks, Protestant uh, believers in Christ, who for whatever reason uh, become attractive to the Roman Catholic tradition, and um, we've even had some um, ordained ministers who made the transition. And I think we've seen the, the, uh, the opposite case where Roman Catholics have come into the Protestant faith. But particularly from Protestant to Catholic, 
again, we're Protestants here, but um, what would there be attractive for a Protestant becoming a Roman Catholic? And again, I, I know this is dangerous territory, but so be it. This is a plain answer. I think there's different aspects that can be attractive. Uh, I think the liturgy of Roman Catholic worship and, and Eastern Orthodox worship, for that matter, mm-hmm. is very attractive, particularly for younger believers who may have grown up in a church with little liturgy mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and from a from a non-denominational or free church background. Um, you know, that may have been something they were missing, and, and then they're seeking that out. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's also an attraction uh, in terms of authority mm-hmm. and the comfort of having um, the authority, uh, the, uh, the the magisterium, I believe is the Catholic term for the for the authority of the church. Um, I think that's a comforting mm-hmm. too. Again, particularly for those who may have grown up in a in a much looser or non denominational oh, yes. church background. I, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, uh, I had a friend some years ago to convert to Catholicism who was a minister, mm-hmm. and uh, we've talked a lot about it. Uh, we even supported this uh, young man uh, and sent him to seminary. Uh, our church did and supplied money and so forth. And uh, he was from, originally from a Catholic background, and when the uh, Pope uh, Paul died, he um, John Paul, he, he got very emotional about it and reconverted uh, mm-hmm. to Catholicism. Uh, I think there are two or three things that are attractive. First of all, many free churches and um, in Protestantism have gotten away not only from uh, any sense of liturgy, but away from the Protestant Reformation, too, in understanding things theologically. And furthermore, from the liturgy that the Protestant churches maintained, the Reformation churches, you do need liturgy in a deep sense of worship. Mm-hmm. Catholic worship is very important, in my opinion, as you know when you attend Westminster. It is that. Yeah. The second thing, though, I think is seeking a security in a very insecure world. Uh, in Protestantism, it does grant you more freedom. On the other hand, it makes for more insecurity. Freedom is very difficult for people today in the modern world as it becomes more complex. And there is a flight, I think, from uh, free enterprise and a whole range of things psychologically. But I also think there is a flight in the religious realm uh, from being responsible for yourself entirely. It's much easier, I think, to find security with a very strong oversight by spiritual authority. Mm -hmm. Of course, that can become... Uh, abusive as well. So uh, sometimes we're willing to trade freedom off for security. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, most Protestants, the Protestant Reformation, just wanted the opposite. Now, I'm just looking at the clock here, and we, and I did it again, fellas. We're up against uh, the end of the program already, so we need to kind of summarize. Today's program is about the keys. And um, just a couple of summary thoughts before we close for today. Well, I think the exercise of the keys and discussion over church, the nature and extent of church authority is very, very important. We've just uh, scratched the surface, of course, and uh, I think until Jesus comes, uh, our churches will be debating this issue. I agree, Uh, and I I think it's important to understand it uh, in this historical context. Um, You know, very often we we get into... uh, uh, debates about current practice uh, without understanding the the deep, deep roots that go back 2,000 years in church history. 
Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's uh, been a delight talking about the keys today here on A Plain Answer. If you have any questions concerning today's program, please email us. Our address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And this entire discussion is up on the web, on our website, and linked to iTunes. In the studio today has been Dr. John Vance and Dr. Hans Vogt. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Please join us again next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. Did we in our